Hello, welcome to the Hamilton Review of Books podcast in our second episode of the season. I'm Alex Kerner, your host. On today's episode, we have our guest, Lisa Richter, a Canadian poet based out of Toronto. And predictably, we're going to be talking about poetry. Poetry is a form of writing I struggle with, and it's been a lifelong struggle. In trying to be a more rounded reader, a better reader, I've made efforts to expose myself to more poetry and thought talking about poetry on the podcast was a great way to further that endeavor. So with no further ado, let's begin. Lisa Richter is a Toronto-based poet, writer, teacher, and editor. She's the author of two books of poetry, Closer to Where We Began, and Nautilus and Bone, which won the Canadian Jewish Literary Award for Poetry, the National Jewish Book Award for Poetry in the United States, and the Robert Crotch Award for Poetry, and was longlisted for the Raymond Suster Award. Her work has been nominated for a National Magazine Award, The Best of the Net, and won CV2 Magazine's two-day poetry contest in 2017. Her poetry has appeared in numerous literary journals, anthologies, including The Fiddlehead, The Malhat Review, Literary Review of Canada, The New Quarterly, and Locations of Grief, and Emotional Geography. In addition to teaching English as a second language, Lisa mentors emerging writers through the Sage Hill Writing Experience and the Writers Collective of Canada. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so I, I, I mentioned in the intro that one of the reasons I'm keen on doing a poetry episode is because I don't have a good relationship with poetry. I've struggled with it. Uh, I think partially because I've, uh, I think when I was probably a teenager, I was into it a little more. You know, I'm from Chile, so Pablo Neruda, before we knew necessarily some of the stuff we know now about him, was a big influence. And, uh, and but, you know, I um, I took a course, my first year university, it was an intro to uh, literature, English literature. And it was a super progressive course, which was somewhat surprising. Mm-hmm. This old white guy was teaching this course. We read Beloved, Miguel Street, uh, Walt, Derek Walcott, and then we spent like four weeks on Yates and I got like and it, and it was like it totally <sighs> suffocated my experience and I stopped going to class uh so I think with a lot of readers struggle with mm. poetry and so but I've but I know so many of my favorite authors were either poets or influenced by poets. Uh, so it's it's something I've, mm-hmm. as a reader, I wanted to engage with more. Uh, and I've known you for a while, and I know you've you, you've uh, you've become a relatively successful poet, uh, whatever that means in the world of poetry. Uh, you, you've racked up some awards, <laughs> right, which yeah. is, is great. Uh, so I, I was keen to have you on on the podcast so that we can chat about poetry and why it's important, uh, why more people need to read it and things like that. So can you tell us a bit about your own history with poetry? Yeah, I'd love to. And I just wanted to preface that by saying that I want to validate your experience um, because it's a very common one, unfortunately. Um, But my own background with poetry, I think, goes back to my childhood. Um, I started writing short stories and poems. Gosh, I mean... 
I want to say as far back as grade, grade one, grade two, um, I was obsessed with it from a very young age. And I think that was in, in large part due to my mom and her influence as a writer and as a visual artist, because I, I grew up surrounded by art. And, and that had a, a major impact on me, I think, as a kid. Um, and then in high school, I was reading Leonard Cohen and Margaret Outwood and E.E. E. Cummings and even Jim Morrison, you know, from The Doors, I think his collection wilderness was one of the first books of poetry i ever bought when i was 13 years old and i was really obsessed with this new mode of telling a new mode of being with a book which was so absolutely different from reading a novel or or reading a short story collection so i was pretty serious about it uh, by the time i finished high school i had a full manuscript um which th yeah thank god i never published because <laughs> probably terrible um and I and I came this close to submitting to a vanity press, which would have gone terribly wrong. Um, and then when I went to university, I went to McGill and I took a first year Canadian poetry seminar. And I was very lucky to get into an upper level class that was just me and about 10 other students sitting around a table reading and discussing Canadian poetry for a year. And I think that was really my initiation into the world of contemporary poetry that allowed me to experience it on a deeper level and take my own poetry to a deeper level. And I think it just kind of spiraled from there. Uh, so what have you been able to do uh, since uh, in terms of publishing? What was the next step in terms of actually getting your poetry into people's ears? <laughs> so the funny thing about McGill at that point was that there was there were no creative writing courses on the curriculum at all. Um, if you want to create a writing and you were in Montreal at that time, you went to Concordia and I was not there. And so I took part in this year-long writing workshop and I joined the editorial board of a literary magazine where eventually I had a poem published, um, or maybe not in that order. Um, and then I left McGill without finishing that degree in the late 90s and then continued just to read and write my own and take continued education courses and workshops and join writing groups. And I started sending my work out to more literary journals and eventually placing them in a few places here and there. But it wasn't until I want to say, um, I don't know, 2013, 2014, when I really decided, okay, it's time to get really serious about this shit and, and take it to another level. And I keep using that uh, that expression. And I realize I'm sounding a bit like a broken record. And there's probably the reason for that is I am a broken record. And I, I <laughs> there's a metaphor for you. Um, but I don't think you can ever stop learning about poetry. I don't think you can ever stop developing as a poet. I don't think you can ever actually finish um, growing as a writer and if and if you do then you're dead um and i at that point kind of you know considered myself more of an apprentice than anything else and i um started working one-to-one -one with a poet named Stuart ross who was an incredible mentor for me and still is uh, to me and to a lot of other um emerging writers i would say and um i finally compiled a manuscript that was published as my first collection closer to where we began in 2017. So taking it back to maybe like your experience as a reader of poetry, you, you mentioned that, you know, it was a, a different experience than 
than reading a novel. Can you tell us what you what you get from that reading experience? Maybe elaborate a little more and and, and distinguish it from like reading the books. Because I'm someone who's more into to the the novel form, and so I'm curious to say, what are you taking from reading a poem or a collection that gives you this? You know, these people call it the reading tingles or something like you know, like really gives you yeah. that rush. I know that rush so well. And in fact, I remember an old prop of mine described it as like the hair on the back of his neck standing up. And that to him was the measure of a good poem. And Emily Dickinson described it as feeling that feeling like the top of her head had been taken off. And I think she said to her that was a measure of a good poem, which to me speaks to the bodily experience of reading. And I think a friend of mine put it really well when he said that when you write a novel or when you read a novel for that matter, it's sort of like, you know, a whole wardrobe of clothes or it's like packing a house. It's there's just a lot of content. And with a poem, it's more like all you can take with you is a suitcase. And so there's brevity, there's compression. It's a finite, very kind of encapsulated experience. And it's not just about transmission of information or plot or story or narrative, although all those things can be certainly present in a poem, but it's about the the language, the musicality, the world that the poet creates that you can walk around in. And I mean, there are many experiences and feelings that um, people associate with poetry that are very negative, I think in part because of the way that poetry is taught as this puzzle that has to be solved, right? Where everything is like a symbol for something else. And you spend all this time trying to decipher the code, like what was Yeats trying to say? Or what was what was Auden's message here? Or, or what did Shakespeare actually mean by that? And why didn't he just say it simpler? So there's this perception that poets have this deeper meaning, that they're obfuscating through poetry, and that it's the reader's job to understand all of it. But I prefer to see a poem as not necessarily a more superficial experience, but a more immediate sensory event that you participate in. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And I think one of the things you see in poetry and um, the brevity is definitely, like I flew through this collection. We'll talk about it later. The one by uh, Jillian Tse, uh, The Quiet Night Think. And, and it's more than poetry, obviously, but poetry is often like, there's so much more playfulness with space what the page looks like uh where the words go and you don't get that in most novel some novels and most novels don't do that right it's you know the paragraph form and they're not playing with this you know they don't have there's no playfulness with the the medium you're putting Mm -hmm. your words on uh and there's something in in reading poetry that you get that appreciation i don't think Mm -hmm. all poets do that but definitely when when you see it it, it's it makes you think about how they're placing their word uh and how they're structuring their poems i mean the use of what you're talking what you're talking about is often referred to as white space and the use of it which can give breath to a poem it gives the reader i want to say psychic as well as physical space where they can insert themselves 
to a certain extent. And in the process of writing, sometimes I use that strategy not so much as a means of taking a breath or pausing, but to connote like the passage of time or to separate thoughts in a way that makes sense to me. Because sometimes I think the problem with my well, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say problem with my writing, but uh, let's say a tendency that I have or a habit that I have is to write these very long, dense stanzas. And I write that way because that's kind of how my mind works. It, it's not, I don't tend to instinctively write very spare, minimalist poems. I'm very much a maximalist in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's part of one of the reasons I was so drawn to Jillian's book. And I guess we'll, yeah, we will get into that later because it's so fundamentally different from my approach to things. So I, I was going to ask you about how we should be reading poetry, but I want to maybe tie into what you're saying about how we, how poetry is taught. I'm thinking about, obviously, we've all watched Dead Poets Society, obviously, and there's that famous scene at the beginning that gets everyone to rip out of his, his books. And it's almost like very few English teachers took any lessons from that experience. And so I'm curious, mm-hmm. like, if you were to, like, this is a lesson to English teachers who are shaping the minds of students, especially teenagers. This is when you mostly get exposed to more serious, they're your first mm-hmm. looks at literary criticism. How would you approach poetry? Or how would you encourage teachers to approach poetry? Well, it's funny that you should ask me this question because I've taught um, or I've I've visited schools um, through an incredible organization called Poetry and Voice and um, worked with students uh, ranging in age or ranging in grade level from grade one up to grade 12 and and taught poetry. I shouldn't say taught poetry. I shouldn't say worked with poetry because I don't know if it's something that can be taught in the same way that you teach content be subject like math or science or a language, for example. And I think that's partially where a lot of teachers go wrong is they start with the content. They start with the subject matter instead of starting with the language. And really facilitating and nurturing an appreciation for the musicality and the beauty of the language itself. And that kind of leads me to another failing, I think, of a lot of schools and the school system as well is something that you touched on earlier, which is the tendency to start with, you know, the canon of dead white European men. And I mean... There's such a rich and wide and beautiful variety of poets of color and queer poets and poets of marginalized gender identities to read and to appreciate. And I think if more students were able to see themselves in the poems that they were reading, they'd find them a lot more accessible. I think that might be changing in terms of curriculums, just talking to some Mm -hmm. friends who are teachers and there's more of an emphasis at looking at diverse voices. The irony of this course I took is that this was clearly a professor who was making an effort to expand the canon, but then he like brings it right right back. Not that there's anything wrong with Yeats per se, right? Or a lot of these um, incredibly iconic poets whose work were deeply influential for me. You know, I was deeply influenced by T.S. Eliot. I was deeply influenced by Jared Manley Hopkins. I was deeply influenced by Walt Whitman. So I'm not saying we should throw those uh, poets out or discard them. I mean, they they contain so many wonderful things that we can learn from, but representation is important and... I strongly and 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 to my core will ever forever support that as an important aspect of teaching and reading poetry. 
So uh, who are you reading these days in terms of poetry? Like what, what kind of poem are you uh, engaged with? And, and can you tell us a bit why you find their work is meaningful or novel? What's going on in the world of poetry that's groundbreaking right now? There are so many poets to choose from. And when you asked me that question, I recently started reading Sonnet Labay's book, Sonnets Shakespeare. And Sonnet Labay is a poet based on Vancouver Island who wrote this, well, she writes in many different forms, but this particular book of hers is entirely composed of found words and letters and phrases from Shakespeare sonnets. And it just so happens that her first name is also sonnet. And so it's um, an act of reclamation in a lot of ways uh, for the author, I, I think, and it's very experimental. So I'm increasingly drawn to poetry that blurs the lines of genre and blurs the lines of form that experiments with language in ways that are innovative or unconventional um, and, and challenges me as a reader. And, and, and even though I sometimes have this feeling of like resistance when I don't know immediately what's happening on the surface, I've learned to enjoy that process of feeling a little bit disoriented and not really sure what, what's going on and just going along for the ride. So um, so that's one poet that I, I started reading recently. And I'm just, I, ha I had the whole list of my head earlier that I jotted down. Kim Hae-soon is a Korean poet, won the Griffin Poetry Prize for her collection, Autobiography of Death. Virginia Conchan, another incredible poet from the States, actually, who's living in Canada for a while and, and moved back to Cleveland recently, is a poet I've been enjoying for her wonderful, wild associative leaps and mythological and biblical reference and the general weirdness of it. I think that summarizes a lot of my taste lately. I'm drawn to things okay. that are weird. Now, I want to talk about your book or your yes. collection, I'm afraid, Nautilus and Bone, which thank you for forwarding. I thought it was great. And I think one of the reasons I liked it is that it there was a cohesion to it. Like you mm -hmm. were following a story to a certain degree of a, a particular individual. Can you give us a bit of a background? Because that's often what I don't get from collections, to be honest, because there's a series of poems that have been put in a, a book that may have been written at different times, might not have any relation to one another. There, there might be some themes that are common because of the particular poet's interested in those themes. But you, yours is, you know, I don't want to call it a novel because it's not a novel, but there is a novelistic mm -hmm. quality to it, I found. And, and you can dissuade me of that, but I felt that there was a cohesion to what you were trying to do in terms. So can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. There is a novelistic element to it. Um, it's very different from my previous book, which was, as you say, much less cohesive um, and covered a very broad range of themes and spanned a period of almost 20 years, actually, whereas this book was written over the course of about two, two and a half years, something like that. And I became interested in the figure of Anna Margolin, the Yiddish language poet the book is about. Um, probably um, when I was doing this reading for the Art Bar Poetry Series in 2016 or 2017. And I had encountered this Yiddish language poet um, whose work had been translated by Adrian Rich, 
who's another famous um, Jewish-American poet that I really admire. And then when I was doing a writing retreat um, at Sage Hill, which is a fantastic summer writing program, I was uh, tasked with the uh, assignment of writing a short play in verse. And so Anna Margolin, this Yiddish poet from a hundred years ago, for some reason, popped into my head. And so that's what I did. I researched her, her work a little bit, and I made some really amazing discoveries about her life and how ahead of her time she was, how progressive, um, radical in her feminism for the time, and I think actually for, for our time in a lot of ways as well. And so that two-page play in verse eventually became the sequence of sonnets at the end of the book. And initially that was that was going to be it for me and this poet. It was just going to be a section of a collection. It wasn't going to be the whole book. And then when I submitted my manuscript to Frontenac House and it was accepted, my editor really encouraged me to pursue this character further, which she didn't have to twist my arm to do because I was already on a bit of a research rabbit hole with this poet um, and tracking her life from what is now Belarus to New York and then back to Europe and eventually Palestine in um, the early 20th century and then eventually New York again and her many relationships, possibly queer relationships as well, which um, was not something that had been written much about, especially with this particular poet this time in history. So it became what... <sighs> might sometimes be referred to as a project book in the poetry world and that's not always a positive term it's actually a point of contention and and somewhat controversy amongst poets some people are really more on the side of writing a collection that's composed of poems that aren't necessarily unified by anything except the fact that they were all written by the same person um because some people feel like that's too contrived or too forced, um, whereas other poets start with a theme or a character or a central concern and then expand that into a book-length project. So obviously it was the latter that was really much the case for me. And the more I learned about Anna Margolin's life and the more criticism that I read of hers and the more I engaged with the work itself, the more I realized that I had to go back and change and then start over again because I was constantly confronting and, and being confronted by preconceived ideas that I had had about who she was as a person or who she was as a poet. And so I think that in the end became a strength of the book, if I can say that, and maybe part of my experience of writing it was avoiding any easy conclusion or avoiding martyring her or canonizing her as much as possible and trying to be honest that she was a flawed human being who, you know, made some very, uh, let's say, questionable life choices, as as we all do, right? Uh, so maybe this is a good time. Do you want to read us a short passage or one of your poems from the collection? Yeah, sure. I'll do that. Um, so one of the poems um, that I wrote about her actually is a very personal one for me. It's called Hysteria, Elegy for Menachem Lebensboim. And I should mention as a preface that 
Anna Margolin was her pseudonym. Her birth name was Rosa Lebensboim. And uh, she adopted her pseudonym when she became a journalist in um, the 1910s in New York City. And I am... I, I don't like to preface my poems too, too much, but I will say that I was sort of channeling some of my own issues and concerns and, and, and emotional states of being when I was writing this one, which may go without saying, but I'll, I'll come back to that later. So, um, Hysteria, Elegy for Menachem Lebensboim. It starts with a quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1910. Hysteria is much more common in the female than in the male, an undue proportion occurs amongst Jews. And that's from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1910. It's a real quote. A real quote. Oh, real okay. Quote. I have that encyclopedia up on my shelf right now. <laughs> and when I read that, I was like, okay, wow. Hysteria. Holding the letter from your address in Warsaw, scrolled in my stepmother's hand, my heart gallops a frothing death gate. Spark of hooves on ribcage rungs, a waterfall's roar drowning in my ears. I'm sorry to tell you, and yet there is no sympathy, no apology. After a long illness, typhoid, the Spanish flu, was its length measured in belabored, sorry, belabored breaths or in the letters she wrote, awaiting the freedom of a young widowhood? Your father finally succumbed. Whose animal screams are these I hear now, slitting open the air's carcass? How can my voice so intimately know the formation of sounds that crown and bloodily rip? Our parlor walls vanish, and I am in an abandoned well. Hello, metal crank and rickety bucket. Whose body is this I see head first tumbling? Who is this crude, carved doll with eatable eyes gulping dark? I see you, little rabbit chaser, sanatorium white pinafore billowing, billowing. While she falls so long, she becomes the falling, plunges in the wind's cold sledge. A girl I had thought buried long ago stretches transparent limbs inside my own. My father, I am lost in your loss. I am loose leaf, torn clean from breaking spines. You had no use for scripture. Ours is not a history of hagiography. And yet in my grief, there is no color I can write of without thinking of you in absentia, the state you had occupied so long even to mouth your name was to mouth the color of charcoal-dusted dove wings, a cloud bank leached of pigment and shade. What does it mean to be the daughter of an absence, an abscess, an abstraction, an absolution? Do you want to tell us a little more about some of the influences that were going through you, through your mind at that time when you were writing it? Sure. Um... So uh, the poems about Anna Margolin discovering um, via letter that her father had died, and uh, this happened in the, sometime in the 1920s. I think she was in her her 30s at the time, and uh, she got a letter from her much younger stepmother telling her that her father had died after 
an illness and she was devastated even though they had been estranged and all this was um, written in uh, her late husband or one of her husband's memoirs actually which I consulted and got a lot of the biographical information from so so on the surface it's about Anna Margolin's discovery of her father's death but it's also very much about my discovery of my father's death, um, which occurred in 2018, which is about a year before I wrote this poem. And that was one of the points of comparison between me and Anna Margolin that actually really drew me to her. And I, and I haven't really talked about a whole lot, but there were a lot of parallels in terms of having a complicated relationship with father figure with a father um, who moved and traveled a lot and then the distance and then a sudden a sudden passing and and what that can do to completely unsettle a person and rock their world and so that was partially what's happening in this poem and then there's the um, Alice in Wonderland reference uh, or image of the, of the girl that you see falling down a well or down a hole of some kind. And it's kind of this disembodied experience that a lot of people have when, when they're grieving, I think, of disassociation and disembodiment and feeling completely disconnected from your body. Um, and I was really in the, in the process of, of, of writing this poem very much influenced by the text of um, in the epigraph from the Encyclopedia Britannica, this whole idea of hysteria being more common. And yeah, right. Like, I mean, so anti-Semitic and, 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 and misogynistic as the whole concept of hysteria always has been. No, for sure. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So those were really where that came from. Uh, So I, and last little thing I'd like to talk about before we move on. Um, I I really want, because <laughs> I love novels, so I want to yeah, take I know it back you do. to my And I love novels. Um, and I do note that you're, in your epigraph, you, you have a quote from Madeline Tian uh, in her book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which is one of yes. my favorite books ever. Oh. Um, and I, I joke that I'm actually an award-winning po- poet because <laughs> I won a competition. <laughs> I think I may have mentioned this to you once. I uh, I guess Kobo did a, uh, a competition uh, leading up to the Giller Prize that when she one and you had uh-huh. to pick whichever book you was your favorite and write a short haiku about it so i wrote a haiku about do not say we have nothing i forget it i've tried to look oh, for it i can't find it you can't um, find you it know, oh that's too um, bad you could um and then you had to go and get as many likes and retweets on twitter of this haiku and i harassed everyone and i figured <laughs> i could i could oh. never do this again this was a one-shot thing and i won that's uh awesome. and and i got like a kobo and i got like 500 dollars Cat. Wow, and uh, and she liked it, and and we ended up meeting because she did a, uh, a a reading here in Hamilton with. Um, they did a little quartet, so they had people who played the music from uh-huh. her book, and then she would do a short reading, music, quite well done. It was it was excellent. So uh, we 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 joked about the poem when I uh, I saw her. Uh, um, so poems and novels so back to what i'm interested in uh yeah so um yeah for sure i think there's there's definitely a trend of some excellent 
authors who come from the backgrounds of poets. Uh, I think mm -hmm. like the two of the last three Giller winners were Ian Williams and uh, mm -hmm. I forget the name of the, the woman who wrote uh, the book, it's Knife. She had four collections even before she wrote her first short story, and apparently she's working on the novel now. And one of my favorite books of last year was uh, Maddie Mortimer's uh, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies that was also very poetic and does that thing of using white space in very creative ways that you really don't usually see in, in novels. Uh, so is there any novels that you would, like if someone who's you know, trying to work their way into poetry. And it's like, this is like a, the gateway mm -hmm. into, the, into the world of poetry. Would, would you recommend? The one that comes to mind off the top of my head is Ocean Vuong's um, Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. Yeah, I have it on my bookshelf, but I've never read it. Yeah, it's interesting because apparently it started off as a personal essay that he published, I think in the New Yorker or the New York Times. Um, I, I can't remember, but it very lyrical and very influenced I think by sound and music and and silence and I think in many ways the language in the book is as important and as much of the point of the novel as the plot itself because it's so much about um the speaker's Vietnamese background and translation and the experience of otherness in um, a modern, urban, um, very marginalized, low-income environment. And I, I, and I feel that that book is one of those bridge kind of crossover books in, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, I've been reading Sheila Hetty's Pure Color, yes. which... I imagine you've read by now because I think everybody yes. read it yeah. <laughs> last year. Yeah. Um, and even though I haven't finished it yet, I'm really impressed by the way that her very short chapters could be easily read as prose poems. Yeah. They seem to be not motivated by plot necessarily, but um, by the speakers in her world and just bringing different and, and don't spoil it for me, because as I said, I haven't gotten to the no, end. No, for sure, yeah. Although yeah. I don't think there is much to spoil, because I don't yeah. think it's really that kind of book. But no. those two come to mind. As, yeah, as, as, as lyric, poetic novels. Um, there are a lot of, actually, and sorry if I can say uh, two more that, that just popped into my head. So Haruki Murakami's novels, even though they're maybe more traditional in a lot of yeah. ways, structurally speaking. Um, they're so surrealist and absurdist in a lot of ways. And I think that impulse is present in a lot of poetry. So okay. I, I, I can't help, but, and I love Haruki Murakami. So okay. I've never read any name. of his work. Again, no. I have the Wind Up Bird Chronicles on my bookshelf, but like many of us, I have a lot of unread books yeah. on my bookshelf. Yeah. yeah, Kafka on the Shore. I would start with that one. Okay, okay. Um, okay, that's great. So thank you so much. So now we're going to move on to the second half of our podcast. So we're going to take a little break now. So welcome to the second half of our uh, 
Hamilton Review of Books podcast poetry episode. Uh, so we are going to do our regular mini book club. And uh, this is a, a book that Lisa suggested for us to look at. And it's Jillian uh, Zay's Quiet Night Thing, and uh, which is a, a, a collection of uh, poems and essays and vignettes, but I don't want to get into too many, much detail. I'm going to ask Lisa maybe to give us a short little summary of how would you describe this book? Well, I I would describe it as a mix of um, lyrical and autobiographical storytelling, and she, she combines um, poetry and prose in this seamless, artful way to um, get into themes of language, identity, motherhood, um, the process of creating, writing, um, and um, being in the world, I think. What it means to be a poet in the world and how that elides with being from a, a background that could be considered other or being othered. And so I, I feel like this collection just weaves in so many themes that I'm also interested in. And I think that was one of the reasons I was so drawn to this particular collection. Can you tell us a bit about Jillian? Do you, do you know her? Yeah. So I first met Jillian um, when, actually, I think that was the first time that Maybe we only time the only time we've met in person. We we read we did a reading together at uh, Word on the Street in Toronto in 2017, and I think it was just after my first book came out. And Jillian had just released her latest collection, which was called Panicle, with ECW Press. And we were on a panel together with legendary Canadian poet named Rue Borson. And so I felt so humbled to be in the presence of these two incredible women poets, one of whom I had studied extensively um, as, a, as a student and, and whose work I was really interested in. And then Jillian, whose work I was less familiar with, but after hearing her read from her collection and joining her on that panel and just talking to her, I just had the sense that this is someone who, this is a writer whose work I could really sink into and, and I wanted to get to know more. So when I knew that or heard that she had a new book that came out and that it was a combination of poetry and lyric essays, I was especially interested because that's something that I've been exploring a little bit more myself lately, like working with creative nonfiction and poetry and using these two very different but sometimes overlapping ways of approaching stories. Is there anything thematically in her work that you find commonalities with, with what you do? You know, I wasn't expecting to right off the top, but right off the bat, but um, there is so much that she discusses in terms of the problems of language and its limitations and potential coexisting, um, the ideas of family and the ghosts of your ancestry coming to haunt you, how to reconcile with a complicated past, how to navigate parental relationships, particularly coming from an immigrant family. Um, my dad 
was born in Germany, actually, in a displaced persons camp right after the war was over, okay. 1948. And he came over with his family as a baby. Um, and even though he was like effectively Canadian, uh, born in, I mean, not born, but raised in Montreal, the legacy of the Holocaust and the legacy of the migration of my grandparents was always a fundamental part of my childhood and my origin story. So encountering Jillian's book, which deals with some of these issues, made me reflect a little bit on my own experience and 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 see that some of the things that I've been through in, in a new light. And I think that's the most or the best that experience that you can possibly hope yeah. for with any book is how to the author's experiences not necessarily reflect my own because I don't need to find them relatable to to necessarily enjoy them you know yeah. what I mean but but to like okay see them in contrast or to, to try to put something in a different light um I find interesting because you had in your epigraph the quote from Madeline Tian's book I do not say with yes. nothing and she does a blurb here and and just what you're saying now from do not say we have nothing mm -hmm. that the, the book of records in terms of how that plays a role in intertwining yeah. like the, the how the family record or the family history was being documented in this way uh, on paper and so to be able to pass on from generation to generation. So I, there's a nice thread there connecting uh, all three of you. There's a quote. Yeah, there's a quote I found, and well, on page four of the book that I thought really embodied what you were just saying and, and encapsulates it in a certain way. Um, she writes, what is the space that poetry offers? Creative space, emotional space, reflective space, a space for possibilities. The poem for a long time remained a rigid slab of words with no room to make the leap. I wanted space, but I didn't know then that to gain it, you have to lose something. Loss, as my mother already knew, is what provides the space from which meaning can emerge. And I think that theme of loss occurs throughout Do Not Say We Have Nothing, uh, with right? Like with the loss of a loss of identity, loss of country, loss of freedom, right? The cultural revolution and and all the aftermath, all the fallout of that. And so there is so much interesting space to explore in that quote alone i think it kind of functions almost as um as a microcosm macrocosm oh it's confusing micro macro which one is it but it just micro, yeah. there you go thank you it just seems to relate to so many other aspects of this book so now that first i'm not sure if you want to describe it as an essay but the first piece where she's talking about language and this uh, Chinese poem and, and, and kind of how the, the nature of Chinese characters allow themselves or give us a special kind of life to uh, to poetry. And I found that quite fascinating. It's like, obviously I'm, I'm, I don't speak Mandarin or, uh, but I, because my partner is, is does. Right, uh, and, right. you know, I initially, I, I have some relationship with the character system in terms of, you know, under a, a very uh, like basic understanding, but I did huh. find fascinating how, you know, obviously uh, uh, Jillian, I, you know, it's, it's not her first language, but she's, she's exploring her her the language of her parents and her family in terms of how it, it had a special kind of poetic nature to it yeah that was something about that that really struck me too and it 
made me think a little bit about my relationship with Hebrew and my relationship with Yiddish, um, which are two languages that I grew up with in a certain way. Um, and I have very difficult and complicated feelings about in both cases. Um, yeah. And, you know, Yiddish was my dad's first language, but we didn't speak it at home. Um, I never learned it. I never actually studied it. I only, like, was surrounded by a little bit of it in Hebrew. Hebrew is another story. But getting back to the collection, I felt like um, the way that Jillian, or, yeah, I, I just want to just comment on how these words or the characters have so many different meanings and the potential for ambiguity and misunderstanding how that occurs i mean yeah. when you think about it i mean that doesn't just occur within languages that occurs across languages but you know what alex maybe it's it's the opposite like maybe we're so used to thinking about language barriers from one language to another, from foreign language to foreign language, but, you know, the complexities and nuances of languages within themselves, and it's not something that we really talk about a lot. I, I recently read a book of uh, called The Kingdom of Characters, uh, which is about the, the Chinese language and its history and attempts to mm. rationalize it or simplify it in the 20th century. And I, part of me thinks is like, what, how much is lost in, in that regards in terms of like the, yeah. the meanings, the, the multiple meanings that exist in these characters? And what does that mean for the use of language going forward uh, when when some of those kinds of subtleties mm -hmm. are, are removed and, and become probably more removed as generations forget the, these multiple meanings? There's that, well, there's that moment at the end of that essay that we were just talking about where she asks her mother to translate a poem by the famous Chinese poet Li Bai, and how she initially takes the wrong approach and asks her mother to translate it literally and how she relies on literal meaning. And I love these lines about it, um, how she expresses this frustration of uh, wanting to grasp something so literally and being uh, eluded by it and the elusiveness and the uh, capriciousness, I think, of language and how it resists sometimes um, just some sort of easy, facile interpretation, um, which I think comes out in other areas of the book, too, particularly when she's talking about um, her obsession with her garden and with weeding. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And her in her mom's relationship with yeah. her garden when she's, I guess, taking care of her kid. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So when she's pregnant, she well, when Jillian describes her her garden that she's caring for, she describes this preoccupation with weeding and and weeding by hand, which is sort of like a losing battle. And yes, I, I know have, that do you? <laughs> okay, I, I'm not a gardener, but I do remember growing up and having a backyard. And at some point, my parents just sort of gave up and let the weeds take over. Yeah. Uh, they lost that battle. Um, but this idea of wanting to remove every weed and the desire to clear space coexisting with the desire to fill a page with words so it's almost like this 
inversion or this inverse parallel of wanting to remove space and simultaneously wanting to fill it. Poetry, though, to a certain degree, you know, you, you took that quote about, you know, being comfortable with space and to a yeah. certain degree, be comfortable with emptiness. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and so like to a certain degree, it's it's somewhat common with weeding, right? Because you're you're pruning mm -hmm. away. You don't mm -hmm. you don't want it filled up with oh, one thing. You're sure. pruning away. I mean, there are so many parallels between gardening and writing. It almost feels cliche to talk about by now, right? Yeah, because yeah. it's been, uh, you know, discussed to death at this point. But maybe the reason for that is it's just such a powerful metaphor of like planting something and watering it and nurturing it and the combination of uh, nurturing and surrender that's involved in that process, you know? Uh, now, a word I learned yes. <laughs> from this collection, uh, I always love it, you know, well into your 40s, always learning yep. new words. The ekphrastic, yes. I think she refers to it a couple of times, and I had to look it up, and it was like, okay, poems written about works of art, and I guess this is something that she's, that, that Jillian says uh, mm -hmm. into, um, and I, I find it fascinating, because art and, you know, works of art are, to a certain degree, aimed to speak for themselves on their own merits, and, and especially works of visual art, mm -hmm. uh, being able to turn those into words sometimes loses something or it's it's not the same and i'm curious what what you think of her her relation like is this is a you know her, her deal yeah. it's like what do you think about being able to to turn these visual works of art into poems or essays or things like that well i'm not sure if turning them into poems or essays is really the reward for it i think it's more a less a process of transformation and more one of conversation. It's more about a subjective experience that the poet has of the painting or the work of art. So the poem becomes less a process of translating something visual into something written and more of exploration, excavation, and 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 discovery I mean, depending on the poet i mean a lot of poets have um, participated in this kind of process uh, from wh auden and and yates um being two of the most famous examples um i'm trying to think of other ones but none are coming to me right now it's just because acrostic poetry is such a huge field it's such a huge preoccupation that poets have and one of the things that Julian talks about which i think is actually quite innovative and a very um refreshing approach i think to acrostic poetry is the process of sitting in front of a painting for an hour and taking notes on it and allowing person's experience the painting to be woven in with other thoughts over her dialogue um what's going on in their internal world so it's more of a reflection of their of the person's subjectivity and interior than an objective reaction to something on a wall if that makes sense no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, obviously, <laughs> my, my interest in novels, I'm thinking of, have you read uh, Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch? No, I haven't. I know, I'm like, the last, I'm like the last person in the world who hasn't read that it's one. It's fine. 
don't watch the movie. Apparently, it's okay. horrible. But um, it involves a, a work of art, obviously, which is an, uh, I think Fabergé is the author. It's the Goldfinch, and it's uh, and and obviously it's in a slightly different form. But in terms of that kind of exploration of a work of art that follows the, the protagonist throughout the uh, the story, is I found fascinating. Yeah. And, and definitely, you're right. It's not just you know describing or turning the work of art. It, it, it's almost like a a, a, a different uh, a different work of art emerges in the exactly in, in the novel than than what you've seen. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that resonates with me. How, how do you think in terms of how the work, this collection, is is organized? Because it's I don't read enough poetry to know if the, if this is the the way folks' collections are are constructed these days where it's a mixture of, of essays and, 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 and stream of consciousness and, and yeah. little snippets. Like it's... I mean, this is something poets have done in the past, but it's not something that I would consider typical of a poetry collection. I would yeah. call this more of a hybrid or mixed yeah. genre book in a lot of ways. Um, but there are a few poets that um, I'm drawn to who have done something similar. And um, I mentioned one of them before, that poet Rue Borson that Julian and I read with um, back in 2017. And one of her books, uh, which is called Short Journey Upriver to Oshida, which won, I believe, the Griffin Poetry Prize sometime in the early 2000s, does a very similar thing with combining travelogue and lyrical poetry and personal essay. And uh, I think the, the reason why a poet might choose that form is to engage with history and narrative in as many innovative ways as possible. So it's nuanced, it's complex, right? Like, and some stories I think are better told in personal essay rather than in poetry. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong about that, I don't know. But but this is definitely not what I would call like a typical poetry collection in the sense that it does okay. intersperse prose a lot more. And how do you think it works for, for her in this collection? I think it's effective. I think it was a really smart choice. And I think the poems themselves, which tend to be on the more spare side with generous white space around them, really lend themselves well to giving the reader a sense of breath, a sense of of pause between the narrative yeah. essays. Um, she also includes some prose poems, which are more, I would say, on the narrative side than on the lyric side. So they're basically like paragraphs or single stanzas. And they're a way for a poet, I think, to play with language within the container of um, a prescribed form. And what I mean by that is it's like um, a kind of a vessel in a way. So if you yeah. have that vessel, if you have that container, that kind of takes up the left brain side, the left, left side of your brain that's concerned with, you know, line length or syllable count or anything like that. And it allows the unconscious, the playful right side of the brain to emerge and and make something yeah. kind of magical, I think. I think as a, as a reader, um, 
I read this in two days, which I never do in terms of collections. Yeah. I find poetry collections can be difficult, mm. even though the word count is a lot. I find that you, I have to take breaks to really like think about what I'm mm-hmm. reading. Mm-hmm. I think in, in that respect, I think I appreciate that in poetry. Because, yeah. you know, as you read novels, sometimes you can just storm through right, it you and you don't necessarily absorb it. or take a moment to like think about, you know, mm-hmm. what's the, the writer actually doing in terms of sentence construction or whatnot. Sometimes you do, but often you can just like zoom through it and poetry slows you down to a certain degree. Um, this one I, I managed to read quite quickly. And part of it, I think, was because it did alternate and gave me different kind of approach like it didn't tire me out it's reading one 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 thing on the page or one style on the page um is there any uh, any particular par- part you want to read for our listeners sure um it's so hard to choose just one but the poem... you can do two we're can totally really? fine having two yeah oh, yeah absolutely great. Yeah, okay yeah. awesome so i'd like to read the very first poem in the collection which is called instructions Instructions. When I say yellow, fold yourself. Lose count of geese. Measure seeds by placing them between your lips and humming. A walnut lets out an opera. Observe the cypress in full sunlight. Do so again in old age. If it grows bright, pay homage. If it grows dark, bargain at will. The fern is another word for memory. Watch the clouds as they knit their way across the night. What I want to tell you is imperative, that we are flawed and exalted, that there are those who still look to the raven for rain. When the wind pines through your window, let it. The wind misses you. It misses everything about you. Can you tell us why you chose this one? I chose this one for a few reasons. Um, Visually, I'm very intrigued by how it's center justified and written in this narrow column down the middle of the page and how that forces the reader to slow down and savor and really linger on every word. Every short line gains its own importance, even though some of the sentences are stretched over a number of lines in this way that's known as enjambment um, in poetic. It has a shape to it. It has a shape to it, yeah. And as the shape, as you go down the page, I find that it's almost like descending down further and further into memory, into history, into identity. And these imperative lines do so again, observe the cypress in full sunlight. I mean, the language is gorgeous. It's just so yeah. vivid, it's so sensual, sensory and sensual, I would say, and so evocative. Um, even kind of getting a bit surrealist in a few places, right? Um, a walnut lets out a lop. A walnut lets out an opera for yeah. me. That's such yeah. a playful and 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 exciting image. Um, so I'm just drawn to the the form, the language, the musicality, the way that the poem ends. Especially the wind misses you. It misses everything 
about you leaves so much uncertainty. Do you know what I mean? There's so much mystery. And I like a poem with a mysterious kind of ambiguous ending because I feel like it invites me to read it over again and and to you know give me room to to walk around in as opposed to being like uh, this is you know definitively what i mean or trying to be clever or or trying to make some kind of statement or being didactic no like this poem refuses all of that it just gives me as a reader this wonderful beautiful space to explore and walk around in how do you find it's like reading another's poem like, have you heard others read your poems out loud? Um, yeah, actually, I have, and it's always so surreal um, having do people emphasize do that. the wrong things or or things that you have not I wrong, mean, but like you have things. your own idea how it would be read. Yeah. You know, I had the mo- the most amazing experience of having one of my poems put to music. Actually, um, yeah, I was collaborating with a composer who. Um, actually composed a, a song for um, for piano and and voice, and um, it was part of this incredible concert series that the poet George Eliot Clark sponsored and 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 put together. So to hear the title poem or the first poem, I should say, from my book Nautilus and Bone, um, put to music, brought into actual tears when I heard it. I was I was so blown away. And so moved by it. Um, but yeah, hearing your own work read by someone else's voice, it's just like, oh, I never thought of that before. You know, I'd never thought of pausing there or putting that emphasis on that particular word. And that, you know, illuminates something about the meaning of the poems that I hadn't thought of before. So that's that's a really cool experience. And it's a very flattering one. Is that musical version... Is it is it available? Is it on your website? Um, I believe so. And if not, it's on YouTube. And I, I'd be happy to send you the link. Yeah. Yeah, I'll add it to the show notes. So can you read us one more work and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up? Sure. Well, that sounds great. Um, so there's a poem called Babel on page 36. Babel. A speck, a gravity hauled out from sea shapes no words, dissolves to sound. It twirls its hair in its sleep. Every day it swivels to speak and tests the banks of volumes bounds. A speck, a gravity made of the sea. We commune in clues and mms and he's until pearled Eve comes round. It twirls its hair in its sleep. With each utterance I recede, my glossary loses ground. A speck, a gravity, mislays the sea. Break my heart in two or three, in words that silt up astound. For now it twirls its hair in its sleep. It's too late, there's no release. Already the script is mispronounced. A speck of sea twirls his hair and sleeps and dreams of gravity. This is a nice, it's not at the end, but it's a nice bookend with the, the 
essay on on language because yeah. uh, this is uh, this, this very like mm-hmm. base form of language but why did you want to read this one um this poem is in a traditional form called the villanelle which is a medieval french form of poetry that has a very particular rhyme scheme so each stanza has two rhyming words so for example the first one ends with c and sleep which don't rhyme exactly we call them more like slant rhymes and then the middle word in ending or the middle or sorry the last word ending the second line of each stanza rhymes as well so you've got sound bounds round ground astound mispronounced and then at the end you have a four line stanza and this poem comes right after a prose poem called Wasega, which is about the poet and her young son exploring uh, Wasega Beach. And it's this really beautiful scene of uh, interaction with her child and the, and the water and the ripples and um, the boy testing the water and just interacting with nature. And so this poem kind of babbled just treats the same subject or maybe builds on it in this way that's so musical and so lyrical so even though I don't know literally what's happening throughout the poem it took me a couple of reads to think about okay who is the it that she's talking about is it the sea itself is it the speck is it gravity what is the subject I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not knowing exactly because I'm so lulled into a trance by this language and, and her control. It's it's masterful. That was a fantastic reading and a fantastic appreciation of poetry. Um, I, I want to thank uh, ECW Press who gave me a, a, sent us a copy to the Hamilton Review of Books for this episode uh, and I'll link them to the, um, to the show notes. Are they uh, a well-known uh, poetry print in, in Canada? They are. They're, they're a wonderful small press and put out fabulous books. Fantastic. Well, I want to really thank you for uh, being a guest on our show, Lisa. Um, this is, uh, it's a hard topic for me because it's, uh, you're, it's my uh, a realm of discomfort, which I think is good. I think readers should put themselves in more uncomfortable situations more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I learned a lot and I hope our readers do as well. Uh, and yeah. I, I love reading your collection and I love reading this one. Can you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you online? Sure. My website is uh, lisarichter.org and my collection, my newest is Nautilus and Bone and can be found on the Frontenac House website. Okay, and I'll have all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much and thanks everyone for listening. 